Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of For the Love of Money, one that I am really pumped for you to listen to. It's with one of my buddies, Cole Hatter. Now, Cole is a successful real estate investor, an author, an award-winning speaker, someone who's made millions and millions and millions of dollars in the real estate arena, not to mention several other companies. And he's the founder of Thrive. You've probably heard of it. One of the hottest entrepreneurial events in the world that focuses on entrepreneurs giving back. You guys have to hear about this event. And he totally crushes it in this podcast, explaining exactly how to find money for your business or your real estate investment. I mean, it is way easier than you think after hearing him talk about it. We talk about being in business with our spouses and, and the challenges that it presents and how we make that work, like specific things that we do to make that work. We talk about giving. And I mean giving, giving, giving in huge ways. He's one of the biggest givers I've ever met in my life. And stick with us until the end because you're not going to want to miss his story when I make him brag about his best giving moment ever. It'll make you cry. It's a tearjerker. I promise you it is epic. This and so much more. So let's dive in. Let's get started. Cole, my man, good to have you on. How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I am doing awesome. So listen, I want I want to start out by saying thank you. Thank you for jumping on here because like you and I were talking before, you're somebody that actually struggles a little bit with self-promotion. So the fact that you're willing to come on here and do a little Q&A with me and talk about your successes and your wins and your struggles and all that stuff, that's really you being vulnerable for the sake of the listeners. So a huge thank you right off the bat to you. Well, thanks for having me and putting me in a position to grow. This is, uh, you know, like we talked about, an area that I've had to grow in and will continue to. So uh, thanks for pushing me out of my comfort zone, making me talk about myself publicly. <laughs> well, here we go. We're going to exercise that muscle quite a bit today. So let's kind of start with your background so everyone can get to know you. Growing up, you wanted to be a firefighter. You actually became a firefighter. And here you are today, this massively successful um, entrepreneur that you know, seems like everybody knows about and everybody's talking about. How in the world did you go from firefighter, which is a childhood dream, to a famous entrepreneur? It was probably about junior high school when, you know, we're at the age of 12, 13 years old, where we say, hey, when I grow up someday, what am I going to do? And God put it on my heart to want to help people just growing up in the church and my parents dragging me down to Mexico for little projects and stuff. I, I really enjoyed helping others. And I guess the values I was raised with of knowing that being born and raised in Southern California, specifically Newport Beach, Orange County, California, I realized I had more than most. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to grow up and do something for the rest of my life, I want to do something where I can help people yet be paid for it. So I looked at being a doctor. I looked at joining our military. I looked at being a police officer. And what's made the most sense for me was firefighting. If I could play with fire and save lives and get paid for it, I was freaking stoked. So started pursuing that career actually in high school. I did high school like any other high schooler would. And then uh, a couple of nights a week. And then on the weekends would go to college and did all of my prerequisites for my firefighter academy, like my EMT school and all my paramedic prerequisites and all that good stuff. So that when I graduated high school, I already did what all the other 18 year olds still needed to do. And I started working immediately with the department at 19 years old. And I had my whole entire life figured out. I'm going to spend the next 30 years in the department, you know, have some side hustles along the way because there's a lot of open, you know, one of the appeals of being a firefighter is the, the tremendously flexible schedule. Uh, if you pick up a couple of shifts and trade a couple of shifts, you can have 20 or 30 days off without technically even taking a day off. So I knew I'd have some, some side hustles along the way, but firefighting was going to be my primary income stream focus, my identity. Two years into that, at 21 years old, I got into a car accident. Uh, and the result of that car accident was I was in a wheelchair for a while. I had to learn how to walk again, had to learn how to talk again. Uh, my, I had a traumatic brain injury. So I had a lot of physical, mental, emotional recovery and ended up back home with mom and dad because I was actually so hurt after that car accident. I couldn't even care for myself. I was like a child again. So 21 years old, moved back in with mom and dad, 
trying to now figure out what I was going to do. And as of recording this, I'm 100% healthy. Thank God that, you know, I have no long-term injuries. I walk fine. I run. I do CrossFit. But uh, for that first year, my long-term recovery was very uncertain of how well physically I would ever, ever fully recover, if fully. And obviously, firefighting requires perfect physical health. So I needed to figure something else out. And at 21, you're still young enough where, you know, my distant relatives and parents' friends or friends' parents, excuse me, would say like, hey, go back to school, get a degree and go get a job. And although the corporate setting is a good fit for some, it's just was never a fit for me. So I said, you know what, I'm not going to go to school. I'm just going to figure out a way to make money for now while I'm healing. And I found myself in real estate. I went and got my real estate agent's license and became a real estate agent. And before I'd even listed my first house for sale, I knew that investing in yourself is important. So I, I paid to go to a three, or no, excuse me, it was a two-day, a two-day real estate training course. And I, even though I had my real estate license, I just passed my test the month earlier. I had no idea that there was anything different in real estate. I thought if you did real estate, everyone did the exact same thing. And I accidentally walked into a real estate investors workshop. And so I'm sitting there you know, with hopes of learning how to be a realtor. And they talked to me about being an investor. And I said, screw it. That's what I want to do. Long story short, convinced my dad of, of becoming my business partner. I pitched him on the best business plan I could possibly think of at 21. You're going to love this, Chris. I, I sat my dad down. I was like, hey, dude, I have literally a flawless business plan. It is perfect. He's like, tell me about it. I said, I have all the time. You have all the money. Let's do this, right? <laughs> pop, I love it. Pop, give me some money, pops. I got you. How can but, you say uh, no to that, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, he did. So <laughs> luckily he said no because, you know, he did not want to teach his son. Although my dad was not an entrepreneur, he was a vice president of a construction company. Um, so he, you know, he had a nine to five job, but uh, he did not want me to have these unrealistic expectations that things are ever handed to us in life because as an entrepreneur, you know, some jobs you might be able to give it 60% effort. And if you're just talented enough or at an easy enough job, you'll still get a paycheck. You take 60% effort in the world of entrepreneurship, you're out of business before you ever started. So he didn't want me to think there's any such thing as handouts. So he did not give me a dollar. I had to learn how to raise money. And we can talk about that in this episode if you'd like. And uh, at 21 years old, started swinging for the fences. At that time, the economy was booming and real estate was booming. So the good news was I was in the right place at the right time. The bad news was I was in the right place at the right time. And I had an unrealistic idea or expectation of what being an entrepreneur was. 2008 came and here in America, we hit a recession and real estate imploded and I lost everything. And so it was in that season from about 2008 through 2011 that I slowly, you know, was hemorrhaging all of my money. I was working more than I had ever worked seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day to only make anywhere between 70 and 90% of my income or my expenses, excuse me. So I would work 30 days straight and have less money than when I started, barely able to pay, you know, some of the things that were mandatory and failing to pay other things. I had to sell cars and it was ugly. And so uh, it took until about 2011 until I got a kick in the butt for some personal reasons. I proposed to my now gorgeous wife and realized, hey, I got to man up and figure out how to make money again. And so went off into the world of entrepreneurship, diversifying. I still own my real estate business to this day. Um, it's now going on 12 years, but I started other companies that are totally outside of the real estate industry because I took what Warren Buffett says to heart that you should have multiple income streams and never rely on one. And I realized that that one income stream is what got me into a lot of trouble when real estate went away. And so I've built, uh, I don't know, 30 businesses and like 26 of them have failed, but, uh, the four or so that are working have not only compensated me the losses and the failures, they've as you've said, put me on the map, made me somewhat successful and um, gave me the opportunity to speak on podcasts like this. And so from 2011 till today, that's what I've been doing is starting and failing or starting and succeeding at businesses and uh, doing it with my beautiful wife and, and now our two gorgeous little girls. So that was maybe a long answer. I just went through about 12 years of my life with you. But uh, uh, that was my, my that's why I want to be a firefighter. I wanted to help people. And what turned me into an entrepreneur was at a necessity of I don't know if I'll ever walk again. I might be paralyzed, you know, who knows? And so I need to figure out how to be financially independent uh, where I don't ever have to rely on anybody to want to pay me where I've just learned how to make money on my own. Man, that's an insane story. Okay, I got so many questions that came to mind. First one is this. Um, two low points in your life. Car accident. You're laid up at mom and dad's. You don't know if you're going to walk again. You have no idea how you're going to make money going forward. Or 2008, 2009, where you've already tasted success and the recession hit, which kicked our butt, by the way, as well. 
and you lost everything. Which moment was a lower point? Which one was scarier? Uh, my car accident was emotionally lower and 2008 was financially lower. Uh, when I got in the car accident, I didn't have any money anyway. So there wasn't, you know, moving back in with mom and dad wasn't necessarily fun, but it was, there was nothing that shifted financially in my life. Uh, but you know, there's more of that story that, that made it very emotionally hard moving forward. And then fast forward, uh, 2008, you know, nobody lost their lives this time. And, and I didn't lose my ability to walk or talk for a while and have to go through all that rehab. But uh, I watched every possession I'd worked my butt off the previous five years for be sold. So I didn't have to go through bankruptcy or foreclosures or anything like that. But I had to fire sale everything I owned. I had a, you know, a Cadillac Escalade, I had to sell for way less than it was worth to just dump it to get out of that payment. Just like I had a wakeboarding boat, you know, $100,000 wakeboarding boat, because at 24 years old, who doesn't need themselves a $100,000 <laughs> wakeboarding boat? So I was making good money. I don't know that I emphasize that. When my dad and I got started, it was so easy to make money. I had not every month, but certain months of six figures. I'm 24 years old making, you know, in some in some months, like 100000 bucks. And so at the end of the year, multiple, multiple six figures, I thought I was like God's gift to the world in the world of entrepreneurship. And then again, 2008 taught me a lesson. So uh, I would say they're each low in their own way, and um, I wouldn't wish either of them on anybody, yet I wouldn't change them because they made me who I am today. Let's take that a little bit uh, more of a step further, if you would. Um, when I got my butt kicked in 2008 due to the recession, it really affected my ego because I had based my value on being successful. Um, did it do the same for you? And, and if so, how'd you get around it? No. Yeah. So that's one thing I get that like your identities, your success. And I had friends that, you know, started living off credit cards and all of that because uh, they had created this image. And in their sphere of influence, their friends looked at them as a successful person. And when the money wasn't there, that would have totally screwed up their identity to all of a sudden be average income or even lower in their network. Right. And so I know a lot of people that leveraged their homes and everything else to still live the high life and then took an even bigger beating. For me, I just kind of, you know, shook it off and I uh, Again, as far as like an identity, I don't I don't think it it really changed much. Um, I still in the world of entrepreneurship um, knew who I was and I knew I would make my money back. I think that I had foresight and I could I realized that this was just a, a chapter, probably from the lesson I learned in 2004, in my car accidents, that no matter how bad, how painful, how terrible all seasons passed and, and that I was in a really bad season. But I think I held firm in my identity that I am an entrepreneur. I will come back from this. I'm only 26 years old. I got a whole hell of a long life ahead of me. I'm not going to be here forever. So I just did a lot of things that were free. You know, instead of going to Vegas and gambling, I went surfing because it's free. And, you know, I just changed my social life a bit. Instead of me buying everybody drinks, I just had them come to my house where an 18 pack for $9.99 solved that problem. And so I just kind of changed my lifestyle a bit. But, um, I don't, I don't know that it was a huge ego blow, and I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I have close friends that went through that. For me, I, I, it wasn't. It was a financial blow, and it sucked, uh, but again, I think I knew that I would come back, and uh, I was just waiting out the storm. All right, so you've got the swagger. You know that you're going to be successful. Um, you kind of have this, this can-do attitude. Where in the world did that come from? Was it born into you, bred into you? Is it mentors? Where did it come from? Yeah, so I'm going to just say life experience, even though I was, again, 25. And so you could say, what life experience did you have? Um, I had started other companies and failed. I had that entrepreneur bug. Even though I want to be a firefighter, it really started. My mom reminds me, I was like eight or nine years old. It was Christmas time. And, you know, what does any eight or nine-year-old kid do to buy their family presents? Mom and dad give them the money to buy their sisters and everyone presents. And so I said, forget that. And I'll, I distinctly remember... I was in Mission Viejo Mall in Orange County, California. This was like 1989 or 19. No, I was later than that, like 1992, something like that. And I saw that they were selling mistletoe for money. And I realized that that stuff grew for free right outside my parents' backyard. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? I can go pull that out of the tree and sell this for money. So I did that. I went home. I knocked the, this huge thing of mistletoe out of the tree and I started breaking them into bundles and I would sell, I went door to door and I'd sell one for three, two for five. And I ended up making a few hundred bucks, like just in my own block. And that's when I first realized, oh my gosh, like I can do something about needing money and doing something to get it. 
And so that's kind of where my entrepreneurial career began. I had a clothing company in high school that, you know, everybody on campus was wearing my t-shirts and my hats and stuff and made some money there and grew out of that and got over it. But so I think that, um, Part of my life experience is what said, hey, listen, I make money, I lose money, I make money, I lose money. It'd be nice to make money and keep it, but I know I'll just think of something else. Um, and then, you know, again, back to that car accident, um, I survived, others didn't. And um, the emotional experience I went through of of losing my best friend in the world in an accident that I was in, um, it, it put something in me where I promised that – so – this is another long story. We'd have to say for a whole nother podcast, but um, I actually had two accidents back to back. They were 64 days apart. One was a car accident. One was a dirt biking accident. Um, in the dirt biking accident, my best friend and I fell into a mine shaft. And in the car accident, my best, my other best friend and I got into a rollover car accident where we were both ejected. In both accidents, I survived and neither of them did. And so I'm 21 years old. I'm in a wheelchair living with mom and dad. And the two closest people to me in my life had passed in accidents that I was in. It didn't, I didn't get a phone call. I was in the car and I was in the mine shaft and I made it out both times. And so I made a promise to them on December 18th. I'll never forget it. I looked up and I was going through emotional hell. You know, I was yelling at God and blaming him for them passing at 21 years old and all that, all that stuff. And uh, I realized that um, I couldn't do anything about bringing them back but I could do something about the time I had left. And I swore to them that I would do more with my life than I ever dreamed possible and make bigger things happen than I ever imagined I could so that I could live a big enough life for all three of us and I would carry their legacy on forever. And so that decision I made on December 18th, 2004, I think is a big part of where, fast forward four years, it's now 2008, I'm getting my butt kicked in the economy. I knew that I had made a bigger promise and that I couldn't quit, and that uh, rolling over and being a victim to the economy. A lot of people like to point fingers. Oh, it's you know President Trump's fault. Oh, it's it's my teacher's fault. Oh, it's my boss's fault. Well, it's not. It's your fault. And so realizing that we can 100% control our future, um, I made a commitment to them that day, December 18, 2004, that I said I would never, ever, ever, ever stop fighting for them. And I think that that's a big part of where I got that tenacity in 2008 to keep me going. It's incredible. First of all, I can't imagine going through the loss that that you experienced. I'm sorry, sorry to hear that. Is there extreme superpower that can come out of huge loss experiences like that? Are, do people that go through that maybe have an edge that others don't, or can so, we all tap into it? Yeah, I get this. That, that's probably the number one follow up question. Is is okay? So you went through extreme circumstances, near life death experience, and that's where you found your drive, your why. As Simon Sinek says, start with why, your purpose, whatever word. You know, it's all the same. Um, can others who haven't gone through that do it? And I think absolutely yes. Uh, and so you know, when it comes to motivation, if you if you go to like if you had to explain to me what being motivated feels like, it's really just a sense of urgency. Like, what is motivation? It's it's feeling urgent to get something done. If you want, you, you know, you and your wife are some of the fittest people in the world. There's a motivation to work out. So when you're sitting on the couch and you're feeling like lazy and you'd rather have some ice cream, what gets you off the couch? There's some sense of urgency, and so uh, anybody can create senses of urgency. And I've actually freaking taught this before. There's there's natural urgency and then there's manufactured urgency uh, a natural urgency is like i see my daughter is about to play in the street chase a chase a ball into the street and a car is going to hit her i'm going to feel a natural urgency that i don't need to work for it's just inside of me and i'm going to run out there i'm going to grab her before she gets hurt but then there's also what i've coined as manufactured urgency where you can and tony robbins speaks i know that you just finished unleash the power within uh, a few weeks ago, I watched you go there on Facebook. I was at the same event up in San Jose in November. And so he does a really good job of, um, gosh, what is it called? Not Murphy's Law. Um, oh, it was the th third day where you Dickinson's. like- Dickens. Dickens, yes, there it is. Yeah, the Dickens process. Uh, you can YouTube it. For anybody listening to this, you can go Google Tony Robbins Dickens process or Dickens something and go through it. But you can create manufactured urgency where you in your gut have that burning sensation, that fire, that level of urgency that you would have seeing your own child about to get struck by a vehicle, even though there is no fear of injury or death. You can through different exercises, visualization processes, et cetera. Uh, Tony Robbins does the Dickens process, and there's two dozen other ways to make something that big of a priority like your health or whatever. And so uh, 
it's I'm not gonna lie, it's way easier being on borrowed time twice that I really appreciate every moment. And I find that sense of urgency naturally because I shouldn't even be here. I literally should be dead with my injuries and my car accident and falling into a mine shaft. So that that comes to me easier. But I mean, look at uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. He doesn't have a near-death experience, and he's probably more motivated than I am. So you can dig deep and motivate yourself by finding that, that manufactured urgency. So you've got talent. You've got swagger. You've got urgency. You've, you seem like you're built to be the perfect entrepreneur, and, and yet you gave the number before. You started probably 30 companies, 26 failed, four of them thrived. Is this the the percentage of success that people should expect when they're, they're rolling up their sleeves and trying to become an entrepreneur? Maybe. And probably plan for worse. Why not? Right. And I love that you said thrive. I love that word. But, uh, yeah, when it comes to my success ratio, I mean, that's a guess. I may have failed more than that or less. Um, I have lost money more than 26 times. That's for sure. Whether it was starting a company or investing in someone else's or whatever. But, um, yeah, I think people should have realistic expectations. They watch, the Social Network, the movie that follows Mark Zuckerberg's life where one night having too much alcohol in his uh, freaking, what is that called, dorm room, uh, he invents Facebook and his very first entrepreneurial endeavor made him the youngest billionaire of his age, right? And so so people see that and they see these these stories and they have this unrealistic expectation. Gary, Speaking of Gary, he's making a lot of noise about that right now. People are like, oh, how do I get as successful as you? And he's like, you know, hey... There were 14 years I grinded seven days a week, 365 days a year before I turned on a single camera. Then there was another three years of Wine Library TV where nobody gave a crap of who I am or what I talked about. Now I get millions of views and millions of followers and all this stuff. And now all of a sudden people want to know how I'm successful. There's no secret. I quietly, while all you guys were having cocktails on a Friday night and getting tans on the weekends, was grinding it out and earned my place. And so... I don't know that there's an even ratio. Hey, start 30 companies and four will work. But I think there is a matter of having realistic expectations that uh, we're not all Mark Zuckerberg who try it once and make billions off of it. Uh, most of us will fail and fail again. The only people you hear about other than the unicorns, as we call them, the, the Mark Zuckerbergs and the you know, Evan Spiegels who founded Snapchat and all that stuff. Besides the unicorns, most of us have horror stories. Most of us have battle wounds. Most of us have scars and, uh, you know, metaphorical scars, right? And so uh, that's part of, of the process. And you learn to know that it's part of the process. And again, back to your question earlier, it doesn't define you when you're in a failure. That doesn't mean that you're a failure. That means that your idea, your timing, your partnership, your delivery, your marketing, something failed, something of your idea that you thought would work, but failed, didn't work the way you thought it would. But that doesn't mean anything about you. Either scrap the whole thing and move on or evaluate where things went wrong, adjust, pivot, and move on. Something about being a successful entrepreneur is agility of being able to pivot and, and readapt or reinvent yourself quickly. Uh, and so that's what I had to do coming out of the recession, right? I couldn't just be a real estate investor that bought real estate only able to make money if the economy was going up. Every dollar my dad and I earned was because we bet that real estate would go up. We didn't know what we were doing. We just bought a house, counted to 10 and sold it and made money because freaking real estate was booming. And so I had to adapt. And the quicker you can do that, the, the faster you can succeed. And so again, that was a long answer, but uh, I would say there isn't any right ratio. Uh, I will say that you should probably fail more than you succeed. Uh, what separates people like you and I, Chris, who, who do well for ourselves and, and the others out there who maybe try once and fail is as cliche as it sounds. When we failed, we just brush it off and try it again. When we failed, we just brush it off and try it again. And all of a sudden something worked and then people coming running and saying, why are you so lucky? It's like, well, there's nothing about luck. I was willing to fail more than you were. Yeah. It's, it's push on until, and it's be adaptable. Totally. I yeah. Love it. Yeah. I call it pivoting, adapting, same thing. Yeah, exactly. So Obviously, you're, you're an incredibly talented individual. What do you struggle with, though, right now as an entrepreneur? I mean, you don't have it all, right? Right. Yeah, no. And nobody ever will. And if they tell you they do, they're lying. So, you know, what do I struggle with right now? I struggle with um, management. I'm not an operator. Uh, I've been a solopreneur almost my entire career. I'll say nine and a half years out of the 12 years I've been an entrepreneur, it's been me, my dad, and then a team of like realtors, contractors, et cetera, people who work for me, but they're not necessarily an employee. 
And then in these last two and a half, three years, I've expanded my team where there are actual employees getting paid hourly that work for me and an actual real life company now. Still very lean. I don't I don't ever I don't envy Gary when he talks about Gary's like the star of the show, but I'll just keep using him because I already brought him up. Uh, he talks about how VaynerMedia is now 800 uh, employees. That makes me sick, man. I would never want that. Is I have zero out of out of zero to ten. I have zero interest in having 800 employees. Uh, I don't even know that I would ever want 50 employees. That being said, to do what I'm doing now, it requires me to have people who work nine to fives for me. And my struggle right now is figuring out how to manage them. And I need like a CEO. Uh, I am the brand, you know, part of what I do is the Cole Hatter brand. And I almost need a CEO of Cole Hatter, not me personally, but that brand, because my biggest struggle right now is I've always just been able to figure it out. I sit down and say, you know, what do I need to do to move the business forward? And I go and I do it. And not that I'm something special, but what I've found is not everybody has that ability of evaluating what's most important and then prioritizing and creating a list and then doing what's most important first, secondly, important, second, et cetera. And the amount of handholding that, and maybe I've just hired the wrong people. You know, that's a consideration too. But the amount of handholding I was talking to my wife uh, of of getting this team up and running. It's like, dude, I might as well just do it myself. And uh, so one thing I struggle with, and you know, maybe you can coach me through this, is figuring out how to have a team know what they're supposed to be doing. Because I feel like by the time I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to open this door right here and walk out to an office of everyone playing ping pong because I was gone for an hour. And the hour I was gone, they don't know what they're supposed to do. Now that's baby. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm disrespecting my employees. That's This is about me not knowing how to tell them what to do. They, of course, work very hard for me. But uh, I think that's what I'm struggling with right now. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. <laughs> I do. We'll, we'll definitely talk offline about a few of those things. Uh, let me ask you this, though. So if that's your struggle. Where are you getting the answers? I know you said hiring a CEO, uh, learning how to manage, how to delegate, those types of things. Who are your mentors? Who are you tapping into right now? So my number one greatest business mentor in the world is Than Merrill. Uh, he runs a company of 600 employees down in San Diego. And uh, you know, I actually met him because I was sitting in a seminar and he sold a product and I bought it and said, screw it, it was about real estate investing. And uh, I had a big comeback. I bought his program in the beginning of 2011 and then went off to make millions of dollars. And so he's like, Hey, you're like a perfect poster child. Uh, you bought my program and now it's working for you, you know, tell the world about it. So it went from mentor mentee to, we are now really, really great friends. And, um, he and I talk once a week, every single Tuesday, doesn't matter where I am in the world from 10 AM to 11 AM. I'm on the phone live with Fan Merrill and, uh, being able to pick his brain has been the greatest. And this is actually what we're focusing on right now is, Fan, dude, you you have employees you don't even know work for you. Like when you get to 500 to 600 employees like he has, you don't know all of them by name. And so like how in the heck do you get to that point? Because I am the manager. I've got people that work for me. So so bottom line is he he is my, my mentor and he is literally the reason I crossed over the seven-figure mark was not just because of the course I bought of his, you know, his program he sells, but uh, because of the additional – friendship we developed and the proximity of, you know, uh, I think it was Jim Rohn, uh, who said, no, 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 it's actually Tony Robbins, excuse me, um, success breeds success. And, you know, if you want success, find someone who's doing what they're doing and do what they did to get there. And so being able to get close enough in proximity to Than to actually see how he interacts and being able to emulate that and copy him is what made me start making seven figures. So, so he's for sure the biggest guy ever. And now I've just got to figure out how to fine tune my day-to-day -day operations. All right. I love it. So here's your chance to be a mentor to the listeners a little bit. You're crushing it in real estate. You now crush it in teaching people how to invest in real estate. Um, here's my question for you. I hear a lot of people say, oh, it must be nice. I don't have the money to invest in it, or I don't have the money to get started. And it's not just real estate. It's any business. What do you say to those people? Nobody had the money. I mean, there are very few examples in history where somebody inherited money and went off to turn it into a business or, or mom and dad wrote them a check. I, you know, most people grinded it out from day one. And so, you know, the way that I did it specific to my circumstance was I needed to buy real estate. I had no money. I was living at home with my mom and dad still recovering from my car accident. My dad who had the money said he wouldn't give it to me. He wanted me to be a big boy. And so I literally found a guy at church. Uh, I had never spoken with him other than this very first, you know, like hellos and good mornings to be polite, but we weren't homies. And I knew that he was a real estate attorney. I saw him driving this freaking six-figure Mercedes Benz that he'd park in the parking lot every single day. 
and or every single Sunday. So I introduced myself and asked him if he'd be willing to go out to lunch, sat him down at lunch with my dad and said, we'll do all the work, you pay for it, and we'll split profits 50-50. And uh, after a few meetings and showing him that I did know what I was talking about and that I had a business plan, what he valued more was my knowledge. Uh, a lot of people will say, even if I had the money, you know, how is someone going to give me money if I've never done a deal before? Or being more general than real estate, why would someone give me the money if I've never owned a business before? And what they're investing in is you. Your business is the vehicle in which they're going to get a return on their investment. But what they're investing in is you, the person. And so after a few lunches, uh, this gentleman who was the attorney at, at church said, yeah, I'll fund them. Let's split the deal. And uh, so we did that. Then we renegotiated and said, let's split it three ways and make this an actual partnership where it's my dad takes a third, I take a third, you take a third. And he went on the fund like the next 20 of my transactions. And so I'm 21 years old. Uh, at this point, actually 22. I just turned 22. This was, I turned 22 in April, and this was now June when this happened. Yeah, so barely a 22-year-old. And uh, I got a complete stranger who had only just seen me at church willing to fund probably like the first 30 plus transactions of my entrepreneurial career. So that's specific to my circumstances. The point is, if people don't have the money, the money's out there. Uh, if you want to get just down to the facts, because of what uh, the Obama administration called quantitative easing and all the money that we've printed through the Federal Reserve, plus the fact that uh, interest rates are low, which means money supply is high, there, there factually is more money in our economy right now than there has ever been which is why the Dow Jones just hit 21,000 for the first time in American history as of recording this podcast just a few weeks ago. And so it is a fact there's more money available to the American entrepreneur today than has ever been in American history, period. And it's just a matter of finding the people who manage those funds or who have that availability and showing them that you're a safe bet. And so 90 plus percent of businesses that get started uh, require some type of capital, whether it's traditional going through venture capital or, or like angel investor, like, you know, A series, B series, you know, first round funding, et cetera, or just going to mom and dad and asking for help or a credit card. I mean, I bought fans program on a credit card because I didn't have it. So I invested in my business by going into credit card debt because I knew all I had to do was flip one house to pay my credit card off. So the money's out there. It just might make you uncomfortable. And what separates the doers from the dreamers is we're okay being uncomfortable and asking people for money. So that was another long answer. I've, I got to get shorter answers, but you're no, asking these stuff. Are I'm, epic. I love that. Well, what you're you just said. Stuff I'm, I'm passionate about, you know? That's the idea, man. I mean, and I love what you just said. You said that's what separates the doers from the wanters, right? Is you're willing to push past that zone of discomfort. I really think that is like where the defining line is between those who make it and those who don't. Oh, and I'll tell you this the most uncomfortable time you ask for money is the first time. The second most uncomfortable time is the second time. But now I'm in a position where, you know, I have no problem. And I go, you know, that's where like the beginner says, well, you've been doing this for 12 years. Cool. But it didn't start this way. And so, again, whether it's in raising money for my real estate business or raising money for any of my other companies, um, it comes back to just knowing that the money's there. It, that is a fact. Uh, there's more money available today than ever before. And so... It's just getting in front of the people and showing them that you have the knowledge. So what I would suggest to a listener right now is before you go ask for money, know what you're talking about. Because I actually am an angel investor, and that's one of the ways I've lost a lot of money. Uh, however, there are some that are looking promising that could have payouts in the coming years, which would compensate my losses. But in the meantime, I have people pitch me on giving them the money to take something, to go get a patent, to then take it to production. And, you know, they've got all these guaranteed whatevers. And... Before people come, before you pitch anyone on money, know what you're talking about. Nothing is more irritating than someone asking me for money and me asking them for very simple questions like, well, what's your business plan? What are you going to do with the money? How do you plan on paying me back? And they're like, uh, well, I saw on Shark Tank, I'm just supposed to ask for money. So like, you know, Shark Tank's like ruining people's reality of, of what it looks like to pitch. And so for anybody in here who wants or listen to this podcast, who wants to do business and might not be in a position to self-fund, welcome to the club. You're a part of the majority of entrepreneurs out there. Go master your craft. Go get good at what it is that you want money for. Know the ins and outs and become a full-blown expert and show a very clear way that when you deposit my check in your checking account, how that money will be returned to me. I don't want there to be any ambiguity. I want a very clear Cole, the money will be deposited. Here's everything that's going to happen for the money to come back to you greater than you give it to me. And when I see that very clear path, I'm comfortable with that path. I feel like it's realistic and isn't a shot in the dark. And you are an absolute expert in the service or industry or product that you're 
starting a company around, that's when you're going to start getting money. So first become an expert, create a plan, then start asking for money. I got to be honest. I feel like I just learned so much. You know, that's something that's way outside my comfort zone is raising capital, asking for money. And the way you talked about positioning yourself and, and positioning your expertise and having all your ducks in a row, um, number one, it gives us permission to go seek people out who may want to invest. Number two, it actually gives us the idea that there are people like you out there looking to invest money because there are not enough investments that are giving good enough returns right now. So it's really just a matter of sucking it up and finding these people. Is that right? Totally. And you just brought up a, a good point that maybe I just skipped over. So let's go deeper into that. What is the point of an investor? I don't care if they're buying gold, if they're buying futures, Forex, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, real estate like me. The only reason that we write a check to buy an ounce of gold or write a check to buy a house is the expectation of someday getting that money back and more. Every single investor under the sun buys or invests into that asset or that commodity or whatever it is with the expectation of getting their money back with a positive return on their investment. And when someone can feel that you are safer than the stock market or you are more guaranteed than gold because you've done all the legwork, you've got all the relationships, you've got everything lined up, the only thing missing in your business model is the capital, then people are going to want to give you money because that's what we do. People be like, man, I can invest in this house and you know maybe get a 10% return on my investment or I can invest in Chris and Lori because they've just created this nutritional product that they've been using personally that Lori's been blending every morning herself and they've got shredded abs and they know this industry and they've got a big footprint in this industry and they've already got a pre-order from Walmart of 10,000 units in 700 stores. All they need is the money for me to fulfill those 10,000 units. Here, take my money. And so that's what most people don't do is you would come and pitch me on, hey, Lori and I thought of something in bed last night. Do you want to invest in it? That's not the right time. It's we've been using it for years. It works. Our inner circle of people ask us to make it for them. They have the exact same results. We've already pitched Walmart. We've already reached Costco. They've already given us a purchase order. We just don't have the money to go fulfill this purchase order. That's when you come and pitch an investor. And I don't want to say you're guaranteed the funds, but that is what people like me are desperately looking for because I want to put my money into a sure thing. And if you can show you're a sure thing, Go watch an episode of Shark Tank. When they feel that that person's the sure thing, they invest in it. There's a lot of people who they say, hey, you're just not ready yet. Thank you. I, I believe in you. You know, this is like a Mark Cuban or, or like a Lori Harder response. They're like, hey, or not Lori Harder, excuse me, Lori uh, Grenier. Your wife is Lori Harder. Um, but uh, they say, hey, thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it, but you're not ready yet. You know, go work and come back when you're ready. Uh, that's, I think, you know, this is, this is, we're going deep into this, but, you know, this is raising capital is, it's almost a trend right now, but people don't under actually understand what they need to do to, to uh, get to the position of pitching someone to raise capital. And so just have your business plan, have all your ducks in a row, and then realize this. It's not as hard as you think it is. The hard part is coming up with an idea. The hard part is doing the legwork. And then getting the money is easy because, like I said, there's more money available now than there's ever been. I love it. I feel like not only am I learning so much, clearly – you have not seen my stomach anytime recently when you say I have shredded abs. Okay. Well, it's because when we hang out, we drink Moscow meals. <laughs> I know. It's, it's all your fault now. I, hey, speaking of hanging out, speaking of our wives that you brought up, Lori, you and I have that in common. We both work with our wives. So mine's Lori, yours is Sonia. Um, how do you make that work? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it easy? Is it tough? Yeah, it's, it's really good and it's tough. It's both. So it's interesting, and I told you the story uh, when we had lunch together, but my wife was was not an entrepreneur and didn't really have an interest. Uh, she's, she's a double major, right, in criminal justice and psychology, and she wanted to study the criminally insane, and <laughs> it just goes to show how dark my wife is. Um, and so uh, that was her thing. And then, you know, we got married, and we thought we were going to have a few years before kids, and and uh, she would go and pursue her career and I would pursue mine. And we got pregnant basically on our honeymoon. So our daughter was born two months after our one year anniversary. And so she went from, you know, this double major 20 something year old pursuing a career to stay at home mom. And she struggled with that new identity because she felt like she wasn't being productive, et cetera. Well, likewise, I bit more off than I could chew. And uh, we talked about this at lunch as well. And I think you recommended a book called, I think it was The Essentialist. Is that what you said? Essentialism. Essentialism, yeah, where I, out of necessity, just stopped answering emails and stopped answering text messages and just said, if it's important enough, it'll get to me. Someone will come to my house. 
And people got so irritated that I wouldn't respond to them. They started going around me to my wife and she would pin me down. Like, when are you going to take a shower today? And I'd be like, I don't know. I'm going to do CrossFit from nine to 10. So I'll probably be in the shower at like 1030 to, you know, wash off CrossFit. Sure enough, I'd walk into my bathroom and at 1028, she's sitting there with a laptop on her lap saying, okay, we got 15 emails you need to answer now. And it got to the point where so many people figured out that Sonny was the only way they'd get an answer that she was getting bombarded to the point where she couldn't even get answers from me herself. So she just started answering them. And then she all of a sudden turned out to be a better entrepreneur than I am. And now she handles things without even bringing it to me. And I joke and call her the CEO because she knows more about the day-to-day -day operations and what's going on than I do. I'm big picture. I put out, I'm a firefighter as it turns out still. I'm, I'm putting out fires in my business and big picture. She's behind me cleaning up the mess. And so it's funny, it was never on our to-do list. She just evolved into the role that she's in now. And I would say is a more valuable player in my companies now than even I am because her natural work ethic when directed into the world of being an entrepreneur, she's freaking gangster at it. So, so that's how she became a straight up business partner in several of the companies I own. Uh, and I love it because I get to see her thrive from a husband standpoint i get to see my wife who now doesn't just feel like she's doing poopy diapers and breastfeeding all day she's she's negotiating seven figure contracts and and moving the world forward um so i love seeing her thrive uh, as a husband the the disadvantage or the areas that we struggle is ever turning it off uh, especially because we have young children uh the only time our kids are quiet is after 9 p.m and by that time, I'm done. I've been grinding all day long, and I want to have a wife where we have a glass of wine and talk about life. And she's like, okay, we've got like three hours of stuff. Let's knock it out now and go to bed at midnight. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. How about you just tell me about your day? And how about maybe we have like one of the grandmas come over and we go out for like a nightcap. Let's go to, you know, a restaurant around the corner real quick. And so whatever. So, so where we struggle is turning it off. And we've had to set strict guidelines of hours. She is not allowed to talk to me about business anymore after 9 p.m., um, and uh, I'm not allowed to bring it up while we're out on dates, et cetera. And so it's a work in progress, but it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever done being in business with my wife and seeing her kick ass. Because like I said, she's, I'm not saying this to fluff her. She really is better at business than I am, uh, which is a huge, huge help. Uh, but then simultaneously, sometimes I'm like, well, wait, wait, can you just be my wife for a little bit and stop talking to me about freaking employees that we need to fire or somebody who didn't sign their contract or, you know, let's just talk about like, life like what hi how are you how how's your how's your sanity how how are you as a human being so i don't know how how are you i mean you're in the same position i am uh how does that work at home for you listen it's always a, a work in progress and, and i've had this conversation so many times with so many couples that are entrepreneurs together either in the same business or separate businesses and it all comes down to those guidelines that you set up when to turn it on when to turn it off and even when you set those up uh, for example, Lori and I have a physical barrier to separate our workday from our relationship. And that is we take the dog for a three-mile walk every single night whenever the both of us are done with our workdays. Sometimes it's uh, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, doesn't matter. That three-mile physical barrier is what it takes for us to finally start to talk again like a couple instead of like a couple of business partners. And it's a struggle and it's tough. And even when we have that physical barrier – we'll still once in a while find ourselves violating it. It was maybe two nights ago, we got in a little argument at 10.30 at night because she was bringing up stressful things about uh, work and deadlines that had to be done. And, and of course, my reaction was, hey, you're, you're past a deadline. Why are you bringing it up? And hers is because it has to be brought up, right? So no matter how hard you try, um, you're still going to, it's still going to be difficult. But that being said, it is one of the biggest blessings in the world to have common dreams and a common pace and common goals to chase together instead of just one person chasing it down while the other one feels left behind. It is always, always worth it from that standpoint. Dude, I think you just gave the world a golden nugget with that with that barrier thing. It's like a reset. Like when we get back from this walk, we're done. And I think that's rad. My wife and I have a safe zone. We ha I have a movie theater in my house and like we, we have date nights scheduled and like once you're in there, there's no talking about business. So, so there's like areas like, you know, we're not allowed to talk about business in bed, right? So like as soon as we lay down and we're winding down, maybe she's reading a book, maybe I'm answering emails. It's like, we, so, so, so there's areas where we've sworn we won't do business, but uh, I think that's really rad to like actually have a physical barrier, like you said, where, hey, this is our routine. We take this walk and then at the end of this walk, there is no business, period. It's, it's done. Well, we need it. I mean, sometimes the first two out of three miles will just be silent where we are just decompressing and kind of 
learning to like each other again, not from a dislike standpoint, but, you know, literally learning to become a couple for the first couple of miles, um, yeah, look, over and over and over again. Let me ask you this. If you're walking, I mean, that probably takes a good half an hour for three miles and yeah, oh, longer than that. It's, it's almost an hour. Okay. So then do you think that it's about the time too? Like, let's just say somebody is listening to this and you know, walking's not really their thing. Obviously you guys are, are in the fitness world. Um, what it, do you think it's a it's a time thing? Do you think that if you guys did a one mile walk, you wouldn't have had enough time for that reset to happen, or what? I think it's a time thing and a physical thing, and, and I think it's a combination of the two. For example, if you, the, the two of you just sat in a room silently for an hour, I don't know if it would have as much of an impact as right. it would going for a walk. Now, the walk is not the end all be all, but I know there was there were several presidential administrations where they would go walk around the White House grounds in order to change the state, change the energy change what's going on physically in order to change the conversation. And cool. we read about that once and, and that's kind of where it came from. And it, it's been a big success for us. Well, I'm going to try it. I'm literally, I'm going to send you a text message tonight of a picture of my wife and I on a walk. You know, now, you know what tonight's is? We have dance lessons scheduled for 730. So there's all sorts of different examples of what you can go do for a physical barrier. Yeah, we got swim class. <laughs> for baby for baby girl but after that we're doing it i love it okay so another thing we have in common we both love awesome cars when i was growing up as a kid i was obsessed i had all the posters and made my parents drag me to all the the car shows but here's why i bring it up you just like me you love amazing cars you've got a huge collection of epic exotic cars do you ever struggle with liking such quote expensive things knowing that people might be judging you while on the inside you know you're one of the biggest damn givers ever nope i don't struggle with it at all um and and i'll tell you why my wife and i have set parameters around what i will buy and um like monetary barriers right like i'm in the financial position that whether i'm paying cash or getting a loan there's really no car in the world you're in the same position like you know, a Bugatti's two million bucks. Well, I'm not going to go pay, pay cash for it, but I can finance a Bugatti, and I could cover that monthly nut. Uh, so, so I'm in the financial position where I can. But my father taught me something growing up: just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so, my wife and I on our honeymoon was one of the brokest seasons of my life. Like I said, being married was one of my one of my motivators to come back and go off to make millions of dollars. And uh, while we were broke, we I knew I was going to make money. Like I, like I told you earlier, when we were on our honeymoon, we took a three-month honeymoon. I sold everything I owned to be able to pay for that. And we were actually walking the streets of Rome, Italy. Uh, we were holding hands. We were, watching, we were walking through the fashion district. So like the, on both sides of you is you know Gucci, Salvador Ferragamo, uh, Fendi, all that, all those Italian brands. And lining the streets were like Lamborghinis and stuff. And that was a world I, I tasted in my brief success in my earlier 20s. And I couldn't even afford to freaking walk into the store, right? Like, I, I just couldn't even afford to be in those stores. And as I was walking through there, I was talking about how I'm going to have this big comeback. And my wife and I said, hey, she trusts that I'm going to make money. Let's set financial barriers and, and or not barriers, I should say, like financial boundaries. That's the word of what we will and won't do. And so, you know, we said, no matter if I'm making a hundred grand a month or a hundred million a month, there's certain things we'll never do. And, uh, I stay true to that. Um, I do have a great collection of cars. Uh, there are cars I would love to have that are outside of the price range that I said I would pay. They're not out of, out of my affordability range, but I just said that when I was broke, no matter how much money I make, I'd never spend X amount. And I see those cars pass me, you know, on the road and I say, oh man, wouldn't it be nice but at, at the same time, I've got to stay true to my core values and, and the integrity and, and my character. So for the collection of cars, oh, and by the way, most of my cars go up in value. All my classics do, and even some of my exotics are rare enough that they don't lose value. So uh, at the, you know, that's another thing that makes me feel good is if I ever needed to, I'd sell them all for what I paid for. I think I've actually got positive equity. If I sold every car I own, I think I would have more money right now than when I started. And so that kind of helps too. But from a work hard and reward yourself standpoint, nobody wants to be a martyr and go off and make millions of dollars and then drive a Ford, you know, uh, what's the one that always blew up? Pinto. Drive a Ford Pinto. Uh, it's nice to work your ass off and then reward yourself. And for you and I, it's cars. As, I am, as I'm recording this podcast right now, I'm wearing board shorts that are probably seven years old. 
rainbow sandals that are so worn through you actually there's actually a hole in the heel and no shirt right which is the pleasure of being an entrepreneur so i don't spend money on anything other than cars my my home is beautiful and i've got a great collection of cars other than that if you found me in the real world you'd think i was homeless or at least really down financially i don't you know stroke you know go around wearing designer outfits and stuff it just doesn't interest me so so my one area is cars and uh, i do it within within you know, set parameters, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. It's okay to have a vice. You know, another thing that I love, matter of fact, I think the thing I love the most about you, quite honestly, is that you have a giving back tab on your website. That is how much giving means to you. You know, and I know on your website, it says uh, life that matters. And in one of your companies that we're going to talk about soon, Thrive, it's making money matter. Everything about you in your DNA is giving. You have your own foundation called uh, living the dream global and that provides aid in disaster areas you've organized that you've organized missions you're a huge huge supporter of pencils of promise um, you founded thrive which is an amazing entrepreneurs event where all of the profits go to charity it's incredible where does this innate drive to give so much come from uh, and I'm going to go back to you know losing Stephen Matt who I who I mentioned earlier and the promise I made them on December 18th and um, just that I know, and also coming from, you know, I, I don't, I don't condemn people and I don't get preachy, but you know, I, I do read the Bible and I know that uh, what I earn and, and the material things stay here and that I'm not going to be able to cruise my, you know, my Audi R8 through heaven. Uh, that's going to stay here too. And so I, I growing up in that mindset that material things uh, aren't what life is all about, and then the commitment I made to Steve and Matt of saying I'm going to make as big of an impact and as big of a change as I can, I value what my money can do for others more than what it can do for me, I think really because of those two things. And uh, to get completely honest, I'm selfish. And what I learned is that I get a bigger thrill giving to others than they get receiving it, and I, I have more satisfaction and more true happiness uh, when I, you know, fund a school through Pencils of Promise or another organization I help is an organization called Homes of Hope down in Ensenada, Mexico, where I lived for seven months on staff uh, in a season of life. Actually, when I lost everything, I lost everything. I moved down to Mexico for seven months, came back, married my wife and made it all back again. And uh, I've, I've built and funded 37 homes for families. And, wow. you know, buying an Audi R8 was was awesome. I drove that car this morning and I call it vehicular therapy. I, I grin ear to ear every single moment I'm behind the wheel of that car. And as good as it felt the day I bought that car and as nice as it is to dry it, it pales in comparison to the feeling I had handing the man the keys to his house that my wife and I were able to fund for him to have a house. And uh, you know, this what this nonprofit does is they build a house. They're only 20 by 20 feet. Um, and it takes a day and a half to build. You know, you bring a volunteer team down and you pay for it. And this particular man who, who the last home we built for, uh, he was a single father. He had two boys under the age of eight. And I was able to hand him the keys to his new front door. Again, it's 20 by 20. And then the interior has a dividing wall, a front room of that's 10 by 20 and a back room that's 10 by 20 where the bedroom, bedroom are, et cetera. I mean, smaller than most of the people who are listening to this podcast garages, probably. 400 square feet. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, we build these houses and uh, handing him the keys to his house and it's a proper home. I mean, it's, it's not like makeshift as a roof and all that. Uh, what we always do is we lock the front door and then we do a little semicircle around the house, bless it and hand him the keys. So they get to stick the keys in their lock, unlock the door and open the door to their home for the first time as this 42 year old man who's just weeping uncontrollably is putting the this guy gets to be emotional right now is putting the keys in the door to unlock the door, to open the door to his home, which is the first time in his little boy's lives that they will ever sleep under a roof. They were homeless. Uh, there's not a car in the world that can make me feel like this. I, I don't get, I don't get choked up talking about my cars. And so another reason I give is because I'm selfish and I want the feeling that I get using my financial blessings to bless others because there's nothing in the world that feels like it. It's its own unique thing. I mean, being a father is amazing. Marrying my wife is amazing. All that's cool, but it's a different feeling. Being able to feed my orphans. I have an orphanage in Mexico right now. We're taking care of 23 orphans right now. Um, 
And that number changes, obviously. It's an orphanage. But knowing that as of tonight, 23 kids are going to eat dinner because I'm paying for it, there's nothing in the world that, that makes me feel like that. So I think I started giving because I promised Steve and Matt I would, and I continue to give because I'm selfish, and I love the feeling it gives me, period. God, I absolutely love that. I, I can absolutely identify. I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh, I want to go build one of these homes with you guys. So when we get offline, do we need to talk about going and building one of these homes? How many of these have you built? 37. 37. What does it cost to build one roughly? Uh, it changes, but between like 12 and 15 grand. That's amazing. Okay. We're totally doing some of these together. Oh, and by the way, just, just for transparency, I didn't 100% fund all 37. Sometimes like you, like, like if you're serious, we'll split a house together and then you'll bring 10 buddies. I'll bring 10 buddies and 20 of us go down there and knock it out in a day and a half. So I didn't personally fund 100% of 37 houses. I have organized and been on the build site and contributed towards or completely funded um, 37, 37 houses total, if that makes sense. But listen, so that experience, those memories, the time on the ground, the boots on the ground, you can write a check, that's fine. But you being there doing the do, that's got to be just as much of the reward. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, whether I funded the whole thing, a portion of it, or just brought the volunteers because somebody else was like, hey, Cole, we're doing a school. Will you come? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a school. Sorry, this is a house. I do schools of Pencil Promise. But uh, yeah, dude, it's it's the best. So let's do it. Uh, it. We should either do it really soon or in the fall because the summer is brutal building a house outside, so, as you can imagine. The sooner the better. I'm the most unhandy person you've ever met, by the way. So this will be not only rewarding, it'll be laughable, I promise. Cool. Well, no, no. We'll just have you paint it. That's easy. All right, there we, 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 I can we've paint. got a full-blown system. So remember, I was on staff with this nonprofit for seven months. So if we see someone who's got, you know, whatever they say, two thumbs or whatever it's called, uh, fourth, I don't know what the expression is, but uh, we just give you a paint roller and say, go paint the wall. So no worries. You won't saw off your hand or something. Perfect. All right. Now, I'm going to force you to brag on yourself. You started to go there. You, you lit up when you were talking about giving. I do this thing. I call it two minutes of pride. And I make everybody flat out brag or tell about the, their best giving moment ever. What's been your best giving moment ever? Um, okay, I'm going to try not to get emotional on this one too. Um, my mom has a, a best friend and this woman a very long time ago was at the airport getting her luggage out of the back of her car and someone who was not paying attention um, rear-ended them at like two miles an hour. And the result was it completely crushed and destroyed her knee and her leg and uh, it crippled her and she has not been able to, to do things physically. It was 17 years. And uh, as long as I had known her, right, basically my entire life, you know, she she would be in a wheelchair or she had to wear special shoes. Um, you know, she couldn't travel in airplanes because her leg had to be straight at all times. It can't bend. So like like we're talking severely impacting the quality of her life. And I finally asked my mom, like, what's up? And she asked her and dude, it breaks my heart. Um, it was a solvable problem. She just could never afford the care for it. And she never had the, just based on her career or whatever, she never had the medical insurance to pay for it. So I was like, you got to be freaking kidding me. This woman can't walk and has been handicapped for 17 years just because she didn't have the money for a correctional surgery. F this. What's it going to cost? Let's do this. And it uh, gets me emotional. But my wife and I were able to 100% fund the the various operations and things she had to have and fast that was about five years ago fast forward to today she is 100 percent healthy she walks uninhibited she no longer needs a wheelchair she flies all over the world to do missions work now because she says that god brought us into her lives to heal her legs so that now she can sit in an airplane and she's doing all types of work in third world countries talk about paying it forward and is completely changing the world and after 17 years of being handicapped has no more handicap because my wife and i could write that check and that is what it is all about, period. That is one of the most remarkable emotional stories I have ever heard somebody <laughs> yeah, tell. Dude, I'm all, I'm all dusty over here right now. That's incredible. Is this where Thrive came from? Is it, so and just so everybody understands, Thrive is literally one of the hottest entrepreneurial events out there right now. It's, it's aimed to expose entrepreneurs who are absolutely crushing it, just like this podcast, but in a, in a way that makes money matter. It's people who give back. So you've had people like Gary Vee and, and Robert Herchevec from, um, oh, what do you call it? Shark, Shark Tank, Tank. Yep. Grant Cardone, JJ Virgin, Luis Ortiz from Million Dollar Listing, Jack Canfield, Ty Lopez, Lewis House, like you name it. It's, it's the who's who that everybody wants to hear from right now. Where did this come from, this idea to put this together all about making money matter and, and teaching people how to do this? 
So what I've been sharing with you, I've been doing since 2011, my wife and I, and, and just for context, you know, we keep our giving private. So I've created what are called four purpose businesses. Um, and so there is a, there is a conflict. Let me just, let me just hit this real, real quick, Chris, uh, for people who did grow up in the church, like me, you know, the Bible or whatever, many religions echo this same notion that you shouldn't give to be patted on the back. You should give because you want to be generous and not as some, you know, uh, gimmick to, to get attention. And that if that's it, then there's no real reward in it. And so I do meet people who are like, well, Cole, you know, you, you talk about the difference you're making in the world. Um, how do you do that? And so the answer to that, or why do you do that, I guess? And the answer to that is my wife and I privately give between us. Um, actually telling that story of my mom's friend is the first time I've ever publicly shared that. That's been a secret between my family and that, that woman for five years now. So my wife and I choose to do things privately between the two of us that I won't share for any reason with anyone. What we do publicly like orphans and all that is what my businesses fund and which makes us a for purpose business model. Um, and you know, we can do a follow up episode or something on that later because that's, that's a whole nother conversation. That's what we teach people to do at thrive. And so, um, with the public giving that we do that I don't ask for any pats on the back personally. It's like, hey, this is what my business does. When you buy a ticket to Thrive, we give 100% of the profit to Pencils of Promise, which is schools are being built. It's not about me. It's about my organizations. Like Tom's Shoes. Blake Mikowski, the founder of Tom's Shoes, he's worth $350 million. I guarantee you he does things privately. There's nothing wrong with Tom's Shoes, the organization, giving a free pair of shoes away to a deserving child somewhere in the world for every pair of shoes they sell. So, so for anybody who's struggling with that, just have that clarity. But then as far as why Thrive exists, people started asking me about it. People would be like, dude, how do you and your wife do this? How do you create businesses that tie directly into their service or product, make the world a better place? How are you, like, how is this working? And so I got on these podcasts and there was different articles written about me and Entrepreneur and Inc and Forbes and Huffington Post, all those, you know, entrepreneurial publications. And then, dude, I started blowing up. And, you know, you called me a famous entrepreneur earlier and I laugh, but the only reason I'm on the map is because all these people started talking about it. And then all of a sudden I get all these followers and they're like, wait, wait, teach me, teach me. So my wife and I were like, okay, well, clearly people are thirsty for having a business that does more than makes money. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not here to help people find their purpose, but I'm here to help their businesses have a purpose. And uh, so we said, well, screw it. Instead of just teaching it on podcasts and getting quotes and Forbes articles, let's just throw an event and see if anybody wants to do it. And we start reaching out to, like you said, the who's who's of speakers. And they're like, this is such a rad concept. I'm in. And then we built a website for it, talked about it. And 440 people showed up the first year, over 600 last year. And we're shooting for 1,000 this year. Uh, and... Um, you know, I really think the difference between the 600 and the thousand this year is because they're going to see your wife is speaking there. And that's, that's, what's going to bring those extra 400 people. But, uh, and so, so what we did was we just took what we've been doing, what just came naturally to us kind of organically of how we've, my wife and I have molded our businesses and we teach other people to do that, uh, again, to create a business. that's not for profit. It's not nonprofit. It's for purpose. And it directly makes the world a better place as it operates. And that's what thrive is. And like you said, it's become the mecca of events because it's genuine, it's unique, it's not a pitch fest. And as you know, I make no money from it. I do this because it's a passion of mine and uh, we give all the profits to charity. So, so that's Thrive. I'm a huge event junkie, especially entrepreneurial events. I cannot freaking wait to go this year. I mean, I haven't been yet and everybody I know is talking about it. So pretty pumped to go. Also super grateful and excited to see Lori up there doing her thing amongst all the other people. So before I ask you the last question, where can we find you? People are going to want to know, you know, about Thrive and everything else that you're doing. Where should we find you? Yeah, Thrive is at attendthrive.com. And as of this moment, ticket sales are not yet open, but uh, maybe whoever's listening to this, by the time you catch this episode, it could be. So you can head over to attendthrive.com to learn about the event and get yourself a ticket because like Chris said, you don't want to miss it. As far as me, I'm just colehatter.com and you can find me on Snapchat or any social media platform. I'm at Cole Hatter, one word on all of them, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all of them, Cole Hatter, one word. Go find this guy. He's epic. All right. Last question I ask everybody. I get all sorts of different answers. Why should people be unapologetic about their pursuit of wealth and success? I say that money is a utility. It's not a destination. It's a, uh, it's a vehicle. And the more of it you have, it doesn't make you a better person. It's just the more options it gives you. So there's, there is no correlation between human worth and net worth, but there's a direct correlation between net worth and options. 
And what I say money does is it gives you more options to do more good if you choose to. It also gives you more options to be a bigger dickhead if you're already one. So it's kind of a magnifying glass. And if you're somebody listening to this who knows that if you no longer had to worry about time or money and that you were financially set and owned your time, that you would spend some of your time and some of your money giving back to someone in some way, then the reason you should pursue wealth with everything for the love of money, as you've called this podcast, the reason you should pursue it with every God-given talent you have and make as much of it as you can is the more of it you have, the more options you have to do whatever you want with. I encourage you to try doing good with it and see how that feels. And like me, you may selfishly make that a part of your lifestyle going forward. Um, so that's it, dude. You shouldn't feel bad about it. You should go after it with everything you've got because now you have more options to do more good in the world. Man, I love it. Money is a vehicle to make you more of who you already are. So if you're a giver, you're just going to be that much better of a giver. Totally. Absolutely freaking love it. Grateful out of my mind. Like I said, when we started this out, self-promotion and, and, and talking about what you're doing is is not necessarily one of your strengths. It's something you're working on. So the fact that you were able to come on and be vulnerable and share everything with us, I am beyond grateful. Well, man, thanks for having me, dude. I'm glad that we could finally make this work. It's uh, It's been fun. All right. Well, listen, you and I are going to hook up soon outside of here and uh, go tackle some of those homes. I get the painting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll give you a paintbrush. You'll be safe. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Later. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.